Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, and we're talking with Emily Dalwis, who's the CEO of Code First Girls. How are you doing, Emily? I'm fine, thank you, Ronan. How are you doing? I'm doing very good, thanks. Enjoying the weather, as I'm sure you are as well. Uh, beautiful sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a bit about your background. Um, I guess I've had a pretty varied background. So I originally started um, by studying engineering, uh, then went and did a degree in shoe design, realized I'd actually probably done the same degree twice because I did manufacturing engineering and whether you're manufacturing aeroplane propellers or shoes, you're actually going through the same process. Um, but actually realized, I think, from both of those that what really interested me was thinking about products and services and you know how do you make things better? Why do customers want to buy certain things and don't want to buy others? Um, so moved into uh, research, so became a quant researcher, did a lot of work around uh, sort of technology uh, around sort of whether it's, you know, digital strategy, mobile payment apps, you know, the launch of um, mobile technologies uh, during the sort of the mid to late 2000s. Um, and then joined PwC before joining Codefest Girls about four years ago. Uh, so for me, it was a really exciting move because I got to do something around an industry which I was really passionate, which is technology but also do something which was really about supporting other people to get into that industry and help them to kind of uh, find the exciting things, which I found exciting as well. Tell me a bit about how, uh, about how you got involved with Code First for Girls and what they do. So I joined Code First Girls four years ago, um, and I was actually hired in. So we started off actually as a program uh, in a company called Entrepreneur First. So EF, Entrepreneur First, are a pre-seed accelerator that hit bright individuals, um, and they basically bring those individuals together to form companies. And Code First Girls was almost a way to support the women who were joining. If they were joining and they didn't have an engineering background, it was a way for them to do some coding courses, and then they could feel a bit more comfortable, hopefully, about whether it's building their own products, working with technical co-founders, or bringing in external suppliers. Um, and what happened was that as EF grew and they were focusing on slightly different um, individuals coming in, uh, they still had a lot of demand for the courses. So they decided to split two off from each other. Code First Girls became an independent company, so they're still, you know, very much part of our family and, you know, we, we consider each other sister companies. Um, but they brought me in basically to run uh, the new company as it was, so take something which had been a program uh, and build it out into a company. So it's been four very uh, exciting and very busy years. Uh, we've basically, I guess, landed on doing three main things. One is we teach people how to code. So that includes uh, free courses for younger women, so late to teens, early 20s. We run our professionals courses, which are for more established women, so doctors, lawyers, handbag designers, anyone who's kind of working. Um, and we also do paid courses at companies for men and women. Um, so these can be half-day crash courses or going to a company and helping them, uh, you know, with their graduate staff. Um, so that's all our coding courses. We also do events. So we do personal professional development events and we do advisory work with companies on tech talent recruitment and retention. So all of these things are around that sort of end mission, which is to say, how do we uh, increase gender diversity in tech? How do we support more women into the industry? Um, so actually working with the women as well as the companies uh, to actually help them get there. Well, that's, that's a lot you do. We keep ourselves busy. Yeah. <laughs> and about coding, what languages do you teach when, when it comes to coding? So we do an intro, which is in web development. So we do HTML, CSS, yeah. jQuery, 
Bootstrap, JavaScript. Um, we also do a level two, which is either in Python or Ruby. Uh, and then we do our masterclasses, which can be anything from, uh, you know, working with APIs, uh, iOS app development, ethical hacking. We had a really nice uh, ethical hacking workshop, which was at Bletchley Park uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so lots and lots of really exciting things. And depending on what people want to do, they can come and join us for various different things about that's pretty good. So tell me one thing about uh, what barriers do you, do you see something more women getting involved in tech and STEM? It's, it's, a, it's a real, um, I'd say almost that sort of death of a thousand cuts, really. Um, I mean, we focus on obviously women in their late teens and early 20s. And I guess we see ourselves as a little bit of a, a life raft for people who feel that they've missed the boat. Um, so all of those women who are kind of going through education when they're younger don't really consider technology, don't really consider STEM, and then realize actually when they start thinking about careers that all the you know really interesting things that they want to do are actually requiring them to have more uh, skills around technology. But it really does start from, you know I think, a very young age. So there were some really great programs out there which support younger girls as well. Um, but there is something which is the challenge around what kind of dialogue we have around uh, technology, engineering, computer science with our young girls, and then the impact that that has on their career choices that they go through school, um, as well as actually how we support people who have come out of school and, you know, coming into the workforce. So how do we get them to upskill if they haven't had those kind of experiences? Um, so lots of sort of pipeline issues on that side. And then also we obviously have, you know, issues around, uh, you know, pay gaps around promotions um, and I'm sure you, you kind of know already around sort of you know some of those figures around people in senior positions and C-suite and all those kinds of things so it's not a single issue unfortunately uh, but often uh, a lot of issues which kind of you know compound together to cause um, you know the, the the diversity issues that we have. I guess the thing for me what sounds out is basically payment issues that where you see women doing the same job as men but getting paid less yeah, in, in some cases, you know, that is the case. I mean, obviously, we have, um, you know, the, the the equalities law, which prohibits, you know, it's illegal to pay someone less like for like. But I think in some cases, it's a little bit more complex as well. Um, so it's not just around sort of equality role for role, but actually, how do we promote people? How do we get people through ranks? You know, taking sort of, you know, putting STEM to one side, looking at the legal industry, I think that's a really good example where, uh, you know, you've actually had more women than men doing um, law studies at undergrad level for probably about a decade now. And yet when you talk about, you know, the number of women who become uh, partners at law firms, um, that's still incredibly low. Um, and, you know, I think it's about 24% of their make partner. And of those make partner, they get paid about 20% less. Um, so it, these these are the kind of challenges that we see. It's not just around um, sort of, you know, gender pay gap on a, on a simple level, but how are we actually, you know, what kinds of people are holding those better paid roles? Um, that's a challenge as well. And I guess also is you probably see a lot of women don't get promotion over, over male candidates. Um, in some cases, and, and you know, it, it's a really difficult one when you're thinking about, you know, if we, if we think about companies and how you value someone who's doing a good job, you know, and it, it really comes down to how do you structure that? How do you support people who, um, you know, let's say if you know, someone's taking time off to have kids or someone's working part time or someone's working back office rather than front office, you know, how do you actually evaluate how someone is effectively doing their job? Um, and I think in some cases, you know, those things need to be real thought of. Um, and the reality is that we're still, you know, in a lot of industries promoting, you know, more men than we are women. Um, so, you know, we need to kind of unpick that issue and really think about like, why is that happening? What are the biases which might be, you know, playing a part? 
but also then supporting women to actually go through um, those promotion processes. Um, and in some cases, looking at those promotion processes and making sure that they're fair, so that they're actually evaluating candidates on whether or not they are good at the job, rather than just are they well networked or have they got you know a champion who's willing to kind of push them through the company. Because yeah, at times, if they don't know how to interview properly, they can make mistakes and then realise they don't know what they've done wrong. Yeah, and I mean, that I guess is the case for probably, you know, a lot of people. But I do think there's something around, you know, if, if, if you're not getting, if you know, when a lot of us go for jobs and promotions, we depend on others who have trodden the path before to a certain extent to guide us through it so to help us figure out look how do we actually put in for a good promotion what are the kind of things that people value so there's first of all the question around what is it that people value and whether those are fair in the first place and the second part is that even if they are fair then do people understand that if you're let's say you know the only woman in your team and no one else has kind of got a promotion above you who's a who's a woman you know it's a little bit difficult to sort of say okay you know what are the aspects which might be playing a part in that Um, and obviously you know you tend to have um, champions and, and mentors and supporters. Um, so if there aren't a lot of women who have been into those roles before, you're less likely to find those from female candidates. Although, of course, you can have male mentors and male supporters as well. Um, but it is, you know, the, the, the reality of, you know, life challenges and what kind of plays a part in that needs to be kind of considered as well. Well, nowadays it should be the best, best person for the job no matter who you are. Shouldn't you come down to your religion or race or anything else? Yeah, it, it shouldn't. But I, I think this is part of the, the challenge because the the numbers just don't make sense if we say that everything's even. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 there seems to be, I think in some cases people are sort of saying, oh, but it's a meritocracy and surely it's based on this and surely it's based on that. If you, let's say, look at, I don't know, you know, challenges around how do you promote someone who's a software developer? Right. You might say, okay, you know, I don't know how you want to kind of evaluate it. It depends on, I don't know, how complicated, uh, you know, a piece that they've delivered or something like that. Is that the only thing which comes into account when someone is a successful software developer? You know, it's not just about sitting in, you know, a corner and writing code to yourself. It's about how how well you can get that project through shop. It's about how well you can manage a team. It's about how effective you are with working with others. You know, so all of these kind of things need to be taken into consideration. And that's not just for women. That's for sort of all sort of candidates. Um, But I think sometimes those points around what we value and how do we define actually who's, who's the best person for the job, those kind of um, assumptions need updating as well. And how would you how do you propose that we get more women in tech and STEM? What can we do? Um, I, I think to to a certain extent, one is you know from from a very young age, just exposing more girls to technology and getting them excited about tech. Um, Two, as far as school advice goes, you know, we still struggle with, and I think this isn't just for for, for girls, it's for boys as well, we still struggle with good work advice. Uh, And it's it's a really difficult thing, you know, if I were to go to my dad and talk to him and say, you know, tell me about, I don't know, writing algorithms for semantic analysis, he'd probably look at me and sort of, you know, shrug his shoulders and wonder what, what on earth I was talking about. But, you know, how do we then get these kinds of individuals, these young young people, to get the right kinds of advice, especially when these careers are new careers and where the people that are doing those careers may not be the ones who they're in contact with um, on a daily basis where their parents or, or their school teachers. So that's one of the challenges there. And the other thing I would say is around just, you know, not to forget that people still continue to learn when they're working. 
So, you know, for us, we work with employable age women. Uh, we've actually just launched a, a really exciting program um, with BT, which is to help women of any age uh, to actually get into a tech job. So we're running a, an intensive coding program, a teaching program with a guaranteed interview um, if for, for all the successful candidates. Um, so these kinds of things, which are basically saying, you know, just because you haven't done it before, that shouldn't be a barrier to you uh, doing it uh, going forwards. If you've got the passion, if you've got the interest, that should be the only thing which kind of comes into play as far as whether or not you're able to, uh, you know, come and get a career here. If you're willing to work at that and actually do that, then we want to help you get there. And we don't want anything else to be a barrier. I guess that if you've got the passion for a certain area, that's going to shine through and you'll, you'll end up doing well in that area. Absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's one of those things where when we look at our alumni, we actually don't see a huge amount of correlation even between those who do STEM versus who, who, who come to us versus those who do arts and humanities and social sciences who then go on to become software developers. So we have people who you know came to us having, let's say, uh, studied history or not having done any studies in STEM or you know even coming to us as refugees who are then going on to become software devs. And it really is around saying, look, do you like problem solving? Are you tenacious? Are you willing to stick with something and, and kind of work through it? And, and do you like being creative? and building things and that's those are the kind of key skills that um, for me you know really make a good software developer and when it comes to you know where those skills can be applied they can obviously do you know you can become a developer but you can also do a lot of other things so it's not that these women aren't um, you know don't have the types of skills and the types of mindsets that you would need to do these types of jobs but it's just that they're applying these elsewhere because when we look at the tech industry you know for lots of different reasons these aren't the types of industries that they're they're considering or, or being sort of you know encouraged to consider um, when they're actually going through their education and their workforce days. And how has the tech and STEM environment changed over the past 20 years for women? Uh, unfortunately, it's been pretty flat. Um, so uh, as part of our 2020 campaign, uh, so we launched that in December, which is to teach 20,000 young women how to code by the end of 2020, um, we actually went and looked at the UCAS data. Um, and if you look at the numbers of individuals who are doing a computer science degree, uh, right, so, so there's that an undergrad level. In 2008, there were 18,500 people who did a computer science degree. That has gone up to 27,400 people last year. But the number of women who are doing uh, computer science degrees has gone from 15.3% down to 13.7%. So not only is it you know, flat, it's actually declining a bit. So, and we see this sort of trend, I think, across this sort of industry, which is that whilst the pool is getting bigger, there's more demand for people with these types of qualifications, the numbers of women who are going into these really aren't keeping up. So, there's absolutely a challenge around saying, look, what is it that is currently being done and what is it that's not working and what can we do more to actually make sure that those numbers uh, go up uh, and not just at university degrees and sort of under that, but also for working people as well. And I guess also maybe if you get very good degree, do what you do and give them a chance to reskill and we learn new, new techniques and new, uh, new ways of doing things. It, it's really important. Um, and it, it is one of those things where I think it was uh, Tech City UK who in their Tech Nation report last year, I think oh, was it the year before, they were saying that we need another million digital and tech workers in the UK by 2020. You know, we, we just don't have those numbers coming through, you know, our, our education system. And, you know, the reality is we're looking down the barrel of Brexit as well. So the numbers of people who are going to be coming from the EU into those tech um, roles is going to be, you know, a little bit stifled as well. So for all of us, you know, anyone who, and, and there's something I probably say at least once a day, you know, there's no such thing as a non-tech business these days. So for all of the businesses out there, how do we make sure that 
we're actually keeping an active pipeline and going to have the people that we need to do those jobs over the next 10 years. And an important part of that isn't just building the pipeline at the, the younger age, but actually making sure that people who are older as well actually have the skills to do their jobs and in some cases even to switch into new jobs as well. Because I guess, because I know that uh, for myself about six, seven years ago, I went back to college and uh, reskilled and did a postgraduate diploma in collective trading. So mm. there's a lot of people in my class who actually do the same thing. They're going back to college to, to relearn and reskill because what they had uh, skill-wise wasn't uh, suitable for the for the new jobs coming up. Yeah, and I guess yeah. you're going to get women who are going to be in the same position. Absolutely, absolutely, and and uh, you know, especially with all of you know, when we look at the the tech industry. It's the fastest growing industry in the UK. I think the average um, tech, tech and digital job pays something like 40% more than the national average. So these are in-demand, well-paid jobs that are going unfulfilled because companies can't find people with the right skills. And at the same time, you've got people on the other side of the fence who are saying, I want to have these jobs, I want to do these jobs, but I don't have the right skills to do that. So how we actually support people with continued learning becomes really critical in this. Um, and it's definitely something that I think, you know, we, we all need to be thinking much harder about. I guess you've got to make sure that when you reskill them, it's in the right areas, not the wrong areas. Mm. Yeah, it, 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 and it's, it's really difficult as far as tech goes because it is such a fast-moving industry. I mean, you know, who was talking about, I don't know, uh, AIs or, you know, data science, let's say, 20 years ago? You know, these are things that, you know, maybe a small group of people were doing. But these days, it's pretty much day-to-day -day conversations. So, you know, trying to then build that talent pipeline who has those skills in that time, which almost the technology is, is, is moving faster than the skills are, um, you know, that's a real challenge. But I do think that there's a real role both for the educational organisations, so whether that's, you know, schools, universities, but also for companies who are now having to think quite carefully about how do we really you know, play a part in building that talent pool, not just hiring, um, because actually we won't get the numbers and we certainly won't get the diversity that we want if we're just waiting for people to knock on our doors. Well, I guess the, the various companies should come together with education authorities and bodies like yourselves as well and let them know what skills that they're going to be needing in the next five years so you're future-proofed. Yeah, and, and there is actually some really interesting work going on in there. So um, I don't know if you heard, so Theresa May announced the Institute of Coding um, this year at Davos. So there's a new organization which is being set up to do exactly that. So it's actually a consortium of both universities as well as organizations like ourselves, so third sector organizations, but also companies who are basically coming together and saying, if we look at coding skills across the UK, what is it that we need to be doing and who needs to be then supporting the educational um, provisions across those those different uh, sort of needs? So there's absolutely a role to play there for higher education institutions, but also as far as companies, in some cases, companies are actually better placed uh, to deliver certain parts of education and some sometimes third sector organisations like ourselves. But it's important that we, number one, understand what each other's doing. Number two, actually do a bit of a scoping exercise to to see look what are the needs out there you know what, what we need to 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 effectively be building going forwards but then number three make a decision about okay who's the right person to be delivering that um, and where are the gaps and where are the opportunities as well because i guess if you chose the wrong person for to deliver it you're going to put yourself back five years probably what, what do you mean you know, <laughs> if you get somebody who is a well-known business person who might not have a clue about the uh, much about tech sector and you put them in his environment said you want to promote and push this and they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, well, I, I think everyone kind of has a role to play in that. And, yeah. You know, 
absolutely I think there's a there's a learning exercise on kind of you know all sides as far as understanding how each other works and the needs but uh, certainly for Code First Girls for us we 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 don't see this as being a sort of a you know one side needs to do more than the others everyone needs to work together and that's why it's really critical that as a mission-led company who focuses on getting more women into tech, we work with companies, we work with the young women as well. And we almost, you know, our purpose is to act as an intermediary. So we help one side to get the skills, to understand what the careers are like, and we have the companies to understand what these individuals are like and kind of evaluate their businesses. So hopefully everyone can kind of win from the equation. But I guess if all sides have to come together, you seem like you've got a good plan. I hope so. I hope so. It's certainly keeping us busy. Um, and, you know, looking backwards, you know, just over even the last three, three and a half years, we've taught about five and a half thousand young women how to code for free. Um, and, you know, we've had some really amazing individuals. So they go on to become software developers, digital strategists, working in fintech companies. Uh, we even had one actually joined NASA as a robotics intern uh, earlier in the year. Uh, so some really, really exciting stories, which is always encouraging. It's good to hear. Anything else you'd like to add to the podcast? Um, I, I guess just, you know, if, if there are any individuals out there working within the tech sectors, you know, come and get involved. Um, so there are loads of ways that you can actually, whether it's yourselves as individuals or your companies, um, if you are an individual who's looking to get into tech, you know, I know you're, especially if you're a woman, obviously, uh, do come and check us out. So we've got lots of free coding courses which go on across the UK for younger women. We have paid coding courses for women, established women. And we also have things like those free programs with BT. So that's um, free three-month boot camp with a guaranteed interview at the end of that. Um, so if you are interested, lots of different ways to get involved. That's great. Thanks so much and have a great day, Emily, and uh, talk to you again real soon. Take care. Thank you so much, Rhoda. Much appreciated. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.